Welcome to the Boston Ed Talks podcast series, where we dive a little deeper into this year's Boston Ed Talks. The Boston Ed Talks are an annual celebration of Greater Boston's innovative teachers and teaching. We're going to learn a little bit more about these teachers, what makes them special, what makes their teaching special, and how you can apply what they've learned to your classrooms. I'm your host, Ethan Bronner. Well, today we're going to talk to Sydney Chafee, who works at Codman Academy as a humanities teacher, but there's something quite special about Sydney, and that is that she's been selected as the Massachusetts Teacher of the Year and as the National Teacher of the Year for 2017. Sydney talks about the importance of collaboration in the future of education, of social-emotional learning, and of creating trust among all partners in this educational enterprise. And we also hear from Sydney about her plans for this exciting year ahead where she'll be traveling around the country and the world. And we learn that she went to space camp. So welcome, Sydney Chafee of Codman Academy. Sydney, you have the distinct honor of being both the Massachusetts Teacher of the Year in 2017 and the National Teacher of the Year. So that's exciting. Um, your Ed Talk was um, an exercise in humility. It was very touching and very lovely for you to say, look, it's not about me, it's about the ideas that I've absorbed from others. And that, you know, I think is true of all of us except for the very few geniuses above us. But I think I'd like to ask you to talk about what the best ideas are. What in others, what effective teaching is about? What have you learned and implemented, and therefore that's why you're being honored? Um, that's a great question. For me, the most effective education is education that feels to students to be relevant and authentic, that is connected to the world, that's interdisciplinary, that doesn't stand alone and live in that classroom and stay there, mm -hmm. but that matters in the, in the larger context of their lives, in the larger context of their community and of the world. And so when I'm feeling like I'm on fire with teaching and I'm doing a really good job, it's when the students are coming in every day with connections between what we're learning about and what they're seeing in the world or in the news. And they're saying, hey, this thing that we're talking about that happened in South Africa in the 1970s, isn't that kind of like this thing that's happening in Ferguson, Missouri mm -hmm. today? Mm -hmm. And and that's when I feel like, okay, I'm right. History is not dead. History matters. History right. matters today. And our students can see that. And they're going to carry forward those lessons into tomorrow. That's great. I mean, it's a little harder if you're a math teacher, I suppose, right? I mean, I think it is in some ways. I don't but mean impossible, but harder. No, not impossible. Um, you know, I've got colleagues who are doing really amazing transformative work in, in all kinds of disciplines. And one thing that has stuck with me that some of my other Teacher of the Year colleagues have said is, I don't teach history, or I don't teach English, or I don't teach math, I teach students. Mm -hmm. And if we use that as sort of our mantra and the place that we're coming from, we remember that regardless of what the content is or the skills are, we're teaching humans. And so we can bring all of these lessons and ideas about what it is to be a human in our world and a human in our society into our classroom in the ways that we talk to one another and collaborate with one another and the ways that we relate the content that we're studying and the skills that we're studying to life. Right. And actually, I mean, it, what's interesting about the idea of teaching students as opposed to a subject is what you just said, which is that you're teaching life. But I'm, I'm wondering if you also think it means that there are 
issues beyond academic skills that kids need and that teachers can help them develop. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I've been really interested lately in talking about social and emotional learning, SEL. Um, and it's something that I hadn't really heard about or had explicitly named for me until a couple of years ago, but it's really a lot of people are talking about it now. And I'm realizing it's not a new idea, of course, that we're going to teach students these sort of skills and um, teach them to embody these traits and these habits that just will be good for them as people in their lives. So um, in my school, we're working on things like collaboration, like giving and accepting critique and using that to make your work stronger, like being a compassionate member of a community, um, like showing responsibility, right? Um, we're teaching kids when there's a setback, here are some different tools that you might use to respond to that in a way that's going to be productive and healthy for you. And in theory, it's productive and healthy in a classroom and it's productive yeah. and healthy in life. Absolutely. Right. And so I think that's our job, no matter what grade we're teaching, no matter what uh, content we're teaching. And I think another interesting idea there is to think about, okay, that's our job as individual teachers, but also as a community of adults who work in a school and who create this environment that kids are going to come into every day. How are we ensuring that our school is responsive to those kinds of needs? And how are we ensuring that our school um, is a place where students can feel safe and healthy and take risks to grow? So I think you're absolutely right. And what are some of the things that Codman or generally you're aware of that collaborative teachers can do to create that environment? Absolutely. I think that one of the things we have to really be comfortable doing is questioning and interrogating ourself and our own sort of practices and our own policies that we've put into place and the things that we sort of accept as, well, this is the way things are. We've always done it this way. We did it this way 10 years ago and it worked and so we still do it. But really being okay with saying, but is it working? Is it serving our kids? Is this what we need to be doing for our kids right now today? Is this policy that we put in place that you will be suspended if X happens? Does that work anymore? Can you think of an example? You know, we, we sort of looked at our suspension policies a few years ago at Codman, and there was a policy in place that said, you know, if you had X number of times in a day that you were sent out of a classroom by a teacher, that would be a suspension. Or we had a policy where we didn't have such a thing as an in-school suspension. Suspension was always out of school. And we realized that wasn't serving the kids. And mm -hmm. so we, we really looked at reducing our numbers of suspensions, keeping kids in schools, keeping kids in classrooms, and making sure that we are maximizing their learning time and that we're seeing them not as, well, this kid is, this kid is a problem, right? But we're saying, okay, what's happening right now? What's surrounding this kid? What's coming into play here that is making it so difficult for this child to be in the classroom? You know, I think that um, <clears throat> after Columbine, there was a period in American education where parents were afraid, and, there, and September 11th, I think, played a role in it, too. It wasn't much long after that, where there was fear that was dominating a lot of the, uh, of the educational policy. We need to make sure that unsafe people are not around our children. And it's possible that things went too far, a little bit like the three strikes and you're out jail system, which is now being pulled back. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, I think I did a lot of work this past year with an organization called Teach Plus, where I was a fellow with other teachers and we were looking at different policy issues that we were interested in that we were seeing impacting our kids in the classroom. And my group was looking at the school to prison pipeline. Mm. And we were tracing that line between, <clears throat> you know, these zero tolerance policies in schools and these really harsh policies where we're suspending kids for any number of infractions and pushing them out. And how you can draw a line from that to the numbers of kids, especially young men of color, who are 
in our prison system. And I think as teachers and as schools, we really have to dig into those realities and we have to say, are we teaching and are we creating schools that are sites of liberation and education and justice and joy? Or are we just sort of perpetuating systems because that's the way it's always been? Yes. I mean, it makes so much sense what you're saying. And obviously, there are safety concerns, right? And, and there are fears of, of firearms and there are fears of attacks and so forth. But uh, the, the the question is, you know, where do you place the emphasis in running a school? And, I, and it sounds like it got a little out of whack and there's an attempt now to pull it back. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, where do you place the emphasis in schools? you got to always place it on the kids. Yeah. And <clears throat> if the, the kids are the reason we're there and they're the ones we're serving and they're the ones who we believe are brilliant and are at the center of our work and are the future yes. of our country, then everything we do has to be in service of them. And our kids are, you know, they're complicated, messy people, and they deserve to have us see them that way and to work with them to work through whatever the issues are that they're bringing into the class. One of the... Um, uh, traits that you have exhibited, according to your colleagues, and I think also based on what you said at your ed talk, is a focus on collaboration. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more to dig and explain to us more what that collaboration entails. You said, for example, we've reevaluated our suspension policy, but what's the collaboration element of it? Absolutely. Um, so we tell our kids in classrooms all the time that the way that their idea is going to get better and stronger is that they're going to collaborate with their peers and they're going to share what they know and then their idea will be better and maybe their partner will have evidence that they didn't have. You know, we tell this to our kids all the time. So I think it's really important that we also embody it ourselves as teachers. Our ideas will only be better and stronger if we start to work with each other. So that looks like and in our school. Like? Yeah, yeah, in our school we meet in... Um, both grade teams and in uh, department teams. And so as a department, we might look at a lesson plan together. And we might say, okay, so here are all the things that we're seeing that look really good about this. And here are some places where this teacher might consider putting in a different activity or differentiating this for different kinds of kids' needs. Or here's another resource I know about that this teacher might use. Mm -hmm. um, we're looking at student work together and we're sort of analyzing what are the kids getting and what are they not. And then again, offering up ideas to one another. We are um, going into each other's classrooms and we're observing and we're giving each other positive feedback because teachers really need that. And we're also giving each other advice and suggestions in a collegial way, right, in a non-judgmental way. That must be a little complicated at times, given there can be age gaps, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, does a young teacher ever go and evaluate an older teacher, or would that be too complicated? Well, so it's not meant to be evaluative. I think that's that's the most important thing. So often what we're looking for is, um, what's the culture like in this classroom? And how is the teacher... How is the teacher presenting? How is the teacher coming across? Does this seem like a classroom where people are joyful about learning? Does this seem like a good learning environment? And, and does everyone community? agree there should be a joyful? I mean, I'm wondering whether there, there were more old-fashioned attitude that joy is not really our goal here. Um, I haven't seen that. I think that, you know, there are times in the year where we get away from joy. Yes. Um, there are times in the year where it's harder to like be there joyful. There are times in life. Yeah. Um, but I think that's also the really beautiful thing about collaboration is at that moment where you're feeling like you're ready to throw in the towel, there's another teacher who is bursting with excitement mm -hmm. about something that's happening or who can come into your room and see it with fresh eyes mm -hmm. and say, hey, did you notice when that kid over there was so excited about learning, you know, and they can give you this perspective that can really reinvigorate you. And so I think um, 
we need to do better at making space for teachers to get into each other's rooms. And that's something I'm working on in my own school right now is how do we create systems to enable that to happen? Because with scheduling and teachers being so busy, doing observations often is the first thing to fall by the wayside. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it's just really, really important that we continue to strive for an environment of open doors and transparency. And how would it work or how are you hoping or how is it working? Is there how often does one teacher go observe another? Yeah. So... um, I'm working on a plan right now where each teacher who's in their first three years of teaching would be paired up with a mentor teacher Mm -hmm. um, and that they would observe one another at least once every trimester, which is not very much. But I'm hoping if I can get it off the ground with a little observation once a trimester and just start getting that into the culture um, of how we do business, then we can build on it from there. And then the master teacher is expected to write something or meet with that teacher? I want it to result in a conversation. Uh Um, When I have had student teachers in my classroom, I think sometimes they come in with an expectation that I'm going to know everything. Um, and that is absolutely not the case. <laughs> there are so many things I don't know. And often in observing the way a mentor, uh, the way a mentee, the way a student teacher approaches an issue, I get so many ideas and I realize, oh, I've been doing this this one certain way for five years because I thought that it was the right way. But my student teacher didn't know that, and they did something totally different, and it was really innovative, and I loved it. And so I think forming a relationship where we can trust one another enough that we can let each other see what we're doing and then just have a conversation, that's where the really great ideas flow from. That makes sense. So in your role as Teacher of the Year, are you going to be going around and observing classrooms across the country or across the world? Yeah, I I really hope so. Um, My coordinators who work at CCSSO, which is the Council of Chief State School Officers, Mm -hmm. they are helping me set up classroom visits. They're the ones who select you? Uh, They convene a panel of people who Mm -hmm. select me. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a panel of uh, representatives from about 20 different educational organizations. Um, And then CCSSO coordinates the program and they coordinate the national program where all of the state teachers of the year come together. And so they're helping me whenever I have a speech in a certain state or I have a presentation or a workshop, they're trying to help me get into a school as well so I can stay connected and really see what's happening. You haven't done it yet. You're going to start that soon. I got to do one um, this summer. There was a summer program happening in New Mexico, and I got to go in with the... um, the acting secretary of education in New Mexico and go see a first grade, second grade, and third grade classroom in New Mexico in a summer program. And it was really, really great to go into a school. What was interesting about it? You know, the thing that strikes me always when I go into classrooms, different classrooms or different schools, is the things that we have in common. So I teach ninth grade. Mm -hmm. These kids were much, much littler (laughs) than the kids that I was teaching. But what I saw was They were digging into a book and the teacher was reading it and they were fascinated and it was the right choice book and so they loved it. Mm -hmm. And we do that in ninth grade too. Mm -hmm. What I saw was colorful classrooms where teachers were using various strategies to get kids excited about learning. And they were learning... I believe they were learning how to write the letter I, but the teacher (laughs) had... sounds like a relatively simple (laughs) But the teacher had put together this lesson of all of these different activities to get the kids to understand what's the difference between a lowercase I and an uppercase I. What are different words that start with I, right? And the kids were really excited about learning it. Um, And so I saw a school where teachers were working together to develop these different lessons because we had two teachers across the hall from each other teaching the same age level, and they had collaborated on this lesson, right? Mm. And I saw school leaders who knew the kids and knew the teachers and were so proud to bring me around and show me what was happening. Um, And so in that way, 
that's not at all different from what's no, happening at my school. That's true. And this this classroom was selected because it's one that they think the collaboration is working especially well? Um, this classroom was selected. I don't actually know why they decided mm. on this school. It was a school where they had their summer program running. Um, and so right. there I was. And so tell us more about what you're going to do in this very exciting year. You're going to take a year off from teaching, and you're going to talk and listen, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I have the privilege and, and the responsibility and of, of representing teachers this yes. year. And so I'm going to get to as many different places as I can and talk to different audiences about why the work of teaching matters, why education is a tool for justice, um, why we need to be okay with talking about teachers as collaborators and learners and not as experts, right, mm -hmm. always. Um, talking about the power of interdisciplinary education and talking about how important it is that we meet all of our kids' needs. So there are a lot of different issues I want to touch on, um, but I'm just really excited to get out there and... I don't blame you. Yeah, and be able to do this work. It's such a... It's so different from what I'm used to, and I never <laughs> thought that I would spend a year away from my classroom doing this, but I'm learning a ton. Of and and it's been really interesting for me to see how big the world of education is. Because I think sometimes as a classroom teacher, you know, it just, it all distills down to that classroom. And we forget about all the context that's built around it and all the different organizations and the different stakeholders and policies and everything that goes into play in what happens in your classroom every day. So it's been very cool for me to be able to sort of peel that onion. And will you go abroad? I will. Yeah, I'll travel with the State Department a little bit um, and be an ambassador for the U.S. in talking about education. And do you think you will visit classes in other school in other countries? I'm very hopeful. That <clears> right. Yeah. Because, you know, one of the things that's interesting is if you look at these international uh, evaluations of how students are doing around the world, at least in the Organization of Economic Cooperation Development, the 30 or 35 rich countries, the U.S. is sort of in the middle. It's not doing all that wonderfully. Uh, but on the other hand, a lot of the countries that are doing better tend to look to our country and say, but you're so much more creative. What are you doing that we're not doing? And, you know, how do we marry our rigor with your creativity? Right. And I think that, you know, that's that's an example of the kind of work and the kind of conversation that I want to have in our country yeah. and internationally. Um, I think that sometimes in education... You know, we see it where we see it with the charter schools versus traditional public schools debate mm -hmm. that happens where these two kinds of schools are set up as opposed to one another and they're set up as totally different from one another. When in fact, when we go into these different kinds of schools and these different classrooms, what we see is what I described before. We see a lot of things in common. We see teachers and students working together to learn and to grow. And so if we can start to have conversations where we reject a little bit of that narrative that says, well, this is a dichotomy, um, and we start to say, what can we learn from one another? What is this What is this kind of school doing really well? What is this kind of school doing really well? And how do we work together to make sure that with of kids course. at the center, they can do great things? Yeah. And, and you also said something which I liked. You said that, um, that uh, you need to learn to be vulnerable in front of your students. What do you mean by that? Well, I think we need to learn to be vulnerable as in the service of our students, I think you ah, said. Yes. Uh, forgive me. Okay. Again, there's this idea that there are some teachers who just have it figured out, right? That your teacher of the year just <laughs> knows things and is an expert <laughs> and will come in and tell you how to do things correctly and then you'll be fine if you just do those things. But, but that's a myth. You know, I don't have everything figured out. No one does. Teachers who have been in the classroom 30 years don't have everything figured out. Um, they have some things figured out really well. <laughs> but I think we need to be able to be vulnerable and say, hey, I'm not sure that I am doing this right. Hey, I can't get 
this kid to feel okay in my classroom and I don't want to blame the kid. I need to, I need you to come in and look at what's happening and try and tell me what's going on so I can fix it. I need you to help me with this lesson plan because I can't figure out how to get kids to understand it. We have to, we have to show each other that we don't have it all figured out. And we especially have to show new teachers that because it's so hard to be a new teacher. (laughs) Sometimes I, I wonder whether the tools of a teacher are utterly transferable or whether there's something, you know, charismatic about a particular individual who's able to get others to do things. But are these things transferable? I think I think there's a bit of both. Yes. But I think some of that charisma, it comes from being in a classroom long enough that you can get comfortable with yourself. Mm. And you can stop trying to emulate whoever it is that you see as that expert teacher and just start to realize what your style is. But I think that you don't get there as a new teacher until you have more experienced teachers show you and talk to you about how they did it. Um, And so I think I've had some student teachers. One of my first student teachers ever came in, and I realized partway through the year that I was just trying to make her be me. (laughs) And I was trying to help her, and I was saying, well, you know, that didn't really quite work, but what if you had told a joke like this? Or what if you, you know, and and it wasn't her style, and it wasn't her personality. And that didn't mean that she was going to be a bad teacher. It just meant she wasn't going to be a carbon copy of me. And the moments where she tried to be me didn't work. Now she's been in the classroom for years and she has her own style and she's very comfortable. And she got a bunch of really specific tools and strategies from me, but she also gained confidence. And I think vulnerability is what's going to help some of those new teachers gain that confidence in seeing, oh, the people who I think are experts are fallible and they're humble and they mess up. And so maybe that means that I'm not terrible at this. And in some fashion, you'll transmit that message to your students about themselves as well, won't you? Yes, absolutely. The sort of, the sort of absolute authority that teachers once had in our lives may not have been the most useful thing. I don't think so. We're, yeah. we're human, and, yes. and we are learners, and we have to show our kids that we're learning too because that's what tells them that it's okay for them to be learning, and the work of learning is messy. The work of learning requires that you mess up, and sometimes you're embarrassed, and you fail, and you make mistakes, and then you figure it out. And it's ongoing. Absolutely. So you're in the business of education, and uh, it's clear from what you've said and and what you said at the Ed Talks that um, we're in an incomplete system. There's a lot still to be done to improve our educational system. How does that change occur? What does it take to make it happen? I believe that teachers are powerful and that teachers are experts and that if we can trust teachers a little bit more, if policymakers and school leaders and administrators can trust teachers to be experts, Mm. we can see some great changes in schools. There are organizations that are doing that work. There are organizations that are helping teachers become experts in policy and helping teachers move in those worlds. Um, But I think it has to go the other way, too. The people who are making decisions about education need to invite teachers in to be part of that conversation, Mm. need to ask teachers, what would the effects of this policy be in your classroom? What do you think about this? I think there are models for that happening, but it needs to happen more consistently. And teachers need to know, teachers need to truly feel like they're being heard and that their opinion is valued, that it's not just, I'm going to bring this teacher in, I'm going to ask what they think, but I've already made up my mind about what I'm going to do, or I'll bring the teachers in, but then I'll have the real experts figure out the details. Mm-hmm. The teacher, teachers are experts. Mm-hmm. We know how to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. We're really passionate about it. Um, so I'm, I'm all about teacher leadership and making sure that teachers have that sort of role. So uh, one possible 
unhappy result of your approach might be that teachers have so much to do that they feel even more burned out than they often feel now because all the things you're talking about require time, attention, work. How do we make sure that we empower teachers and help them collaborate and yet um, not burn them out? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, to be honest, it's not one that I've fully figured out <laughs> because I think sometimes my inclination is just go, 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 go and make it work. Um, but I do think that there's something there in terms of talking about collaboration. There's something to be said about it's not all on one teacher. If we can figure out how to get smart about mm. having teachers working in teams mm-hmm. um, and collaborating with one another and tackling problems together, I think that there. I think that there's real possibility there. I, I think it's a very good point that, that, that you, you kind of mitigate it by the collaborative nation, collaborativeness of it all will help each individual feel less burdened. I think so, yeah. yeah. But, but that's, on, that's on more of a school level or a systems level is how do we figure out how to make time for that right. and how do we structure it. You know, I've seen teams at my school that are very well-intentioned but get nothing done because we don't really know how to operate in that way. A lot of teachers, know, we know how to push things forward in our classroom. Mm-hmm. But to work as a team and then really have something come out of that that's useful um, and that can live beyond that, that team or that meeting, I think teachers need some training in how to do that and teachers need to learn how how do we be leaders and how do we make those sorts of changes? One thing that I've just been really interested in in my own career path is thinking about what is that step that's between classroom teacher, career classroom teacher, and administrator? Mm-hmm. Because often what happens is that a teacher is in the classroom for a while, does well at that, enjoys it, and then is either encouraged to or decides on their own, jump into administration. And there aren't a ton of models of something between. Yes, a kind of master-teacher phenomenon. Absolutely. Yes. And I think more of that is, is starting to happen. Yes. You know, there are more teachers in hybrid roles. There are more teachers who are spending some of their time coaching. Um, I'm really, really interested in those, in models where that is working really well. I think it's um, a very good point. You know, and, and I'm, I've spent my life as a journalist working at newspapers, and we have the same problem, which is you have a great reporter and is often turned into an editor, which is not necessarily, it's a different job. And what you really want is to have a kind of master reporter role, helping other reporters be better reporters. Right. So one thing, um, so I worked at, I did a Teach Plus fellowship this last year, and we were in working groups. And within our working groups, we we sort of just collaborated to make that work happen. Um, And sometimes we got bogged down and we got stuck and we didn't quite know what to do because we'd never done this sort of policy work before. Mm -hmm. Um, And in response to the feedback that we gave them, Teach Plus has now decided to put someone in who is who has been a fellow before um, as sort of a facilitator within those groups. And so they're a teacher. They've been through it, but they understand how yeah. that stuff works a little yeah. bit better. Um, I think that's a really brilliant way to start mm-hmm. to go about the work because it also provides a career path for the teachers who don't want to go into administration but want to do something a little bit different. I want to stay in the classroom and I also want to build my own skills. I also want to be, I want to see myself as on some sort of professional trajectory in the classroom the whole time. So That makes sense to me. That's a very cool thought to create that career path for people who are excellent at at, at, in the classroom, but we're looking for new challenges without leaving the classroom. Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, it obviously becomes a budgetary issue I that right. I don't have the answers yes, to. But, right. um, but I think there are, I, again, I think that there are schools and systems that are doing it well and we have to find them and figure out the secret. 
one of the things that's, uh, that strikes me when I look at and talk to teachers is the growing role of non-academics in what you do. Because there, there are all these things that people need to learn to be. These are social and emotional skills that they, you need to help them develop. How do you go about doing that at the same time that the, you have all of these increasing academic demands on the times of the kids? So I got to attend a workshop recently, and they they flipped this on its head for us. So they said, instead of thinking about social and emotional learning, think about the idea that learning is social and emotional. Mm. And so incorporating these these notions of social and emotional skills or traits or habits, it's not something that needs to sit alongside the curriculum. It's not something that you have to sort of fit in. It needs to be woven into everything that we do. So when we are doing a project with kids and we have them working in groups, that's social and emotional learning because we're going to teach them how to communicate and how to work together in a way that's respectful. Um, when we're tackling difficult issues in history or mm-hmm. current events, mm-hmm. we need to also be doing social and emotional learning so that we're teaching kids, well, how do we engage on these issues? How do we take care of ourselves and how do we take care of each other when we're talking about hard stuff? Um, so some specific examples. I mean, when kids are escalating, when they're getting really upset about something, rather than immediately assuming that they are just being disruptive or just being disrespectful, trying to dig in a little bit and figure out what's going on here. This isn't actually probably about me. This isn't actually probably about that math problem Mm -hmm. or whatever. What's really going on and how can I get this kid to talk with me about it? Um, And so offering kids options like journaling, offering kids the option to go talk to an adult who they trust and who they have a relationship with. And then once you can get them to start to open up and realize, oh, this this reaction that I'm having is is bigger. It's not actually about this math problem or it's not about this thing that happened just now. It's it's connected to something else. Then starting to help them identify what are the strategies that will help them in that moment to re-engage in the work. So That's very interesting. I mean, the, the it's not about me is a very difficult lesson that not just teachers have to learn as they go through life, but it's really important that it's usually not about you. Is one of the most important things that uh, a veteran teacher told me my very first year. She said, look, it's not about you. And I <laughs> yes. said, but that kid just screamed at me. And right. she said, it's not about you. Right. Get over yourself. Right. You need to do work with that kid. Like, you need to go figure out what's going on. But there's something else there. And you, you can't take it personally. Because mm-hmm. the moment you start to take it personally, you're not going to be able to help that kid in the way that they need to be helped right now. Because yeah. um, you're just going to be worrying about, you know, protecting your own ego or whatever. Um, But yeah, I I think, again, I think just sort of thinking about, okay, learning is social and emotional. So what do I need to do in my classroom or in this lesson plan to ensure that I'm helping kids, to ensure that I'm helping kids understand themselves, understand how to react in certain situations, understand how to communicate, how to, how to work respectfully with people, um, and how to take care of themselves when, when things go awry, I think is really, really important. Okay, all of that is incredibly interesting, but what about space camp? <laughs> As teacher of the year, you were able to go to space camp? All of the state teachers of the year, every year, travel to Huntsville, Alabama, and do a week at space camp. And what does it mean? What did you do? 
Oh, it was amazing. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Space Camp, um, if you've seen the movie from the 80s or 90s or whenever it came out, um, Space Camp is designed for kids and they also have an educator program. And so we got to do all of the same stuff the kids did, including eating in the cafeteria. Um, but we also had sessions where we would talk about, OK, how would we incorporate this kind of design thinking or engineering challenge into our classes? What would we need to do to ensure that all of our kids had access to this activity? Um, which was really great. And mm. even though I don't teach STEM, right. I found things in there that I could definitely use. Um, and then it was also one of those really cool experiences where I was being challenged and I you was... physically? Yeah. Mm-hmm, and I was in my sort of growth slash danger zone. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and whenever I find myself in an experience like that, it puts me in the shoes of my kids. Because for some of my kids, writing an essay is in their danger zone, right? Mm. And for me, it was <laughs> when they said, we're going to do a simulated helicopter crash and you're going to try not to drown in a lake. Um, and so that sort of thing reminds me, okay, how do I need to be treated right now by the facilitators who are in charge so that I feel safe and comfortable enough to take this risk and overcome this. Um, so That's fascinating. Yeah. That's a great analogy. So I want to thank you, Sydney Chafee, for joining us on uh, the Ed Talks podcast. Uh, it's utterly fascinating to learn about all the things that you've learned uh, that have brought you to being named uh, National Teacher of the Year. And I can say, having spent this time talking with you, that that wasn't a bad choice at all that uh, you have a lot to teach, teach all of us, and you do it with great collaborative and, humil- and uh, humble skills. Thank you very much. Thank you. To watch the Ed Talk discussed in this podcast and learn about future Ed Talks, go to www.bostonedtalks.org. You can also find the Boston Ed Talks on the Boston Foundation's YouTube channel, on Twitter, at Boston Ed Talks, and on Facebook.